0: Hey, this is Vernon Oaks. Glad you're with us this morning. Our guest is Mr. Vern Dosh, who's a retired NISC president. Good morning, Vernon. Good morning, Vernon. Okay. <laughs> Glad to have you uh, on this morning. And you go by Vern, right? Yes, that's correct. Okay, and I go by Vernon, so we'll keep that separation there. Vern, you uh, are retired president
1: and CEO of NISC. What is NISC? Well, NISC is the National Information Solutions Cooperative, Vernon. And, um, you know, it's, it's a little unique as cooperatives go. A lot of times, I think, when you think about cooperatives, you think about housing cooperatives or food cooperatives, agricultural cooperatives. But NISC is a technology cooperative. It is a cooperative that develops software software. Um, supports, implements software, and um, distributes it to other co-ops around the country, to uh, rural electrics, uh, rural telecom, broadband providers um, around the country, many of whom are also cooperatives. So who, who owns NISC? So typically, Vernon, what happens is um, a rural electric or a rural telephone, rural broadband provider will have needs for accounting software, billing software, engineering software. So they become a member. So the co-op becomes a member of NISC. And so they they share in the profits, they share in the governance as any co-op. But it's really these rural electrics and rural telephones that become the owners of NISC. Okay. So, Vern, how did you get involved
0: in co ops. that's not a normal track so how did you get
1: involved huh. well you you're right about that and i'm i wish i could tell you that i had my whole career planned and that you know i went to school to to come out and go to work for co-ops didn't quite work that way i i went to university um, received degrees in accounting and billing or accounting and business and honestly vernon through. All of that education, there was never really mention of co-ops. I mean, we studied for-profit entities, partnerships, um, limited liabilities, publicly traded companies, but there really was not a mention of the cooperative business model. So I came out uh, with a degree, and literally two days later, I went to work for a cooperative, for Capital Electric Cooperative, which was a distribution, electric distribution cooperative, in, in my hometown of Bismarck. Um, and I, I gotta tell you, I mean, that first couple of days I sat down with, uh, with the CEO and he was explaining that, you know, we buy power wholesale and we sell it, we mark it up just a little bit, we sell it, but we're all about service. We're all about taking care of our customers. And oh, by the way, at the end of the year, we allocate our profits back to our, our customers, our members, our owners. And I remember as a young, naive, impressionable 20-year-old, you know, thinking, well, that, that is pretty lame. What, what business <laughs> would give all their profits back, you know? <laughs> so that was the beginning. And, um, you know, little did I know, Vernon, that that first job offer, that first opportunity to work in a cooperative literally would define my career for the next 45 years. Co-ops became um such an important part of of my life. Okay, so
0: you're out of school having had you had no education. I mean no knowledge from a formal education of co op. And that's similar to my background. I have an undergrad in math and chemistry, a masters in mathematics, and then an MBA. And nowhere in that business degree did they talk about co-ops. It was always what's best for the shareholder in a cooperative situation. Every decision was best. What's the best return on investment (ROI)? So yes, and you learned about it earlier than I did. I did not hear about it until probably 30 years after I graduated. You were the two days. Been phenomenal. So it's also interesting as a young person. You're sitting around talking to the head of the organization.
1: Yeah, you know, this was a relatively small um, organization. We had maybe 40 employees. So it was not unusual, you know, to, to be able to go in and sit in the CEO's office. And, again, as a young, impressionable individual just getting started in their career that was such an amazing opportunity, you know, to be able to be mentored by the CEO that he would take the time, you know, I mean, in a, in a typical for-profit organization, you wouldn't see that, you know, you would, you just wouldn't see that because the drive is, you know, number one, improve shareholder wealth, period. And, um, you know, what I found was that this notion of, We're in business to take care of our customers, which was rural electric members, rural telephone members all around the country, many of them living in rural areas. And quite frankly, that would have not had electricity or telecom broadband services without the efforts of these rural electrics. And, you know, as a young person... That really left an impression on me. And I and you know, at this time, Vernon, where we're talking so much about the environment, you know what was the number one thing that encouraged me to go to work for Capital Electric? I'm talking to them during the interview and they're talking about, you know, we're belonging to a larger co op called a generation and transmission cooperative based in electric. They mine coal, they generate electricity. Now this was back in in the early, early 70s, and that co-op, although they were not required to, made a decision that they were going to reclaim the, mine, the, the land when they were mining coal. They didn't have to do that. It was a huge expense, but these were farmers and ranchers, rural people that had a love of the land that understood what it meant to be a steward of the land. So they said, no, we're, the right thing to do is we're going to put the land back to its natural habitat of the way it was before we mined coal. And I remember listening to that going, man, that's, I can get behind that. I want to work for that company because even then, before it was cool and before it was woke and everything else, there was an attitude of social and environmental responsibility that that really resonated with me. You know, I'm like I'm from Bluefield, West Virginia. My father
0: worked in the my grandfather worked in the mines in, in McDowell, West Virginia. And my father worked on a railroad and that's hauling the coal out of those mines. And a couple of years in in college I worked on the railroad with him. So coal all in our family. And I remember when they started doing strip mining, they would leave the mountaintop bare, and then their erosion would happen and flooding would happen and so that was there was conversation, but there was never a conversation that I ever heard of where the companies would go in and reclaim the land. They became law at some point, but it wasn't based on what they said they would do, so yeah, that's phenomenal to start off in a in in the interview. <laughs> <laughs> with that being uh, part of the conversation in the early seventies, because this, yeah, the major issues in West Virginia with coal mining, and that you guys in South Dakota, the 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 uh, co-ops were already doing that. That's phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, and I could see how you, you know, would want to me, work there.
1: Yeah, it gave me an indication of of what the true character was of the organization, of of what their priorities were. And, um that was so refreshing, because that is not what I had learned in school, yeah, so you said you you're from
0: North Dakota,
1: yep, I grew up here, all of our kids are here, all of our grandkids are here, you know, people as I traveled around the country because n i s c had customers in all fifty states um you know, people thought it was odd that I would live in North Dakota. Why do you want to live there? And and it is, you know, this is this is my home. This is where my family is. My commute on many good days was a kayak ride down the Missouri River and riding my bike into work. So so that's why I live here, Vernon. <laughs>
0: I'm sure that's not in the winter time, though, when it's cold no. in
1: uh, North Dakota. You know, the, the Missouri River does have a tendency to freeze over in the in the winter. <laughs> Listen, we're going to take our first break, and I just
0: really want to thank you for coming on this morning, Vern, to talk about your your history, your 40 years in this business, in this co-op business, and how from day one at the interview you got turned on because they were doing environmental things and we're going to come back and hear more about your your 40-year experience we'll be right back please don't touch that dial This is Vernon Oakland, is, is Arnos. Arnos. Armas, Everything Cooperative. And this morning we have Vern Dosh on the line with us. He is the, or was, he's retired now from the National Information Solutions Cooperative, uh, which is a consumer co op. He was the CEO and the president of that. Vern, would you tell us? You went from that first job at Capital Electric Co op, I think you said. And can you take us through the, the different job you had and what you were doing? And and you've already said what your first day in the interview you found out you loved it because they were environmentally conscious back then, reclaiming the land when they were doing mining.
1: But what is some of the jobs you had? What what did you do? What's your path? Yeah, so uh, Vernon, when when I came to work for Capital Electric, it was an accounting position. I was the the accountant, the bean counter. I took care of billing and payroll and, and things like that. And, um, you know, at that time, things um, in the early 70s, things were very manual. You know, our accounting was manual. We calculated payroll manual. Billing, for the most part, was manual. And these were all electrics. And, and at that time, there was about 1,000 of them around the country. Uh, Rural telephones, there was about 1,400 of them. But they were all in a place where, you know, they had been operating for a couple of years, some 10, 12 years. And uh, they knew that in order to be more efficient, they were going to have to automate. They were going to have to begin automating using software. But uh, back in the 70s, you know, mainframes, a single processor was a million dollars. Programmers were few and far between. So, this co op, NISC, the thought was well, you know, if the big, uh, the IBMs, the Unisys, the boroughs of the world, uh, HPs, were not willing to work with these rural co ops because, quite frankly, their technology spend was pretty small. So the concept was look, let's form a co op, a technology co op, to develop the software once and distribute it among the co-op so that they didn't have to reinvent that wheel. So in my position at Capital Electric, right across the Missouri River in Mandan was this young startup technology co-op. And because we were close, we were a beta test site for a lot of their software. When they were automating payroll, they would come over and sit down with us and work with us. So. During those early years, I had an opportunity to be exposed to that technology cooperative and um, really grew to respect the people over there. And, um, you know, we were able to do some good things together, me on the user side, them on the technology side. And um, when the opportunity presented itself to come to work, For that organization, it just, you know, I was young, I was single, um, probably more of a risk taker and uh, left the the security of co-op that, you know, was a monopoly, that was very secure financially, jumping across the river to this startup co-op that, quite frankly, you know, the jury was out as to whether or not they could be successful. Whether or not this concept of a technology cooperative could could be sustainable, because quite frankly, there was not another model in the United States at that time for that type of co-op. So, yeah, much to the dismay of my dad, I left uh, that secure job and I, I jumped into NISC, and um, and it was a an amazing an amazing ride of iterations of technology from mainframes to distributed, to the cloud, to mobile. And in the morning, we got up knowing that the work we were doing was facilitating the delivery of really important technologies, of, of electricity, of broadband, of telecommunications, to some of the toughest areas in the country to serve. So that was really you know, that was really the path, Vernon, was just kind of moving from, from one to the other, um, realizing that there may be an opportunity there, but feeling that you were really making a difference, that the work that we were doing was really important. and And the people that I got to work with at NISC were extraordinary. I mean, they they were smart and they were dedicated. And, and so many of those people could have gone to work for Apple or Google. And, but when we recruited employees, we recruited leading with culture, leading with the fact that we are a co-op, that we're wired differently, that our priorities are different. And I'm telling you, Vernon, that resonated with, with the young people that we were hiring. That's how we built NISC. Well, just like it resonated with you. Yeah, when you that first day in the interview, um
0: uh, there's much more here than a job. It's how do we protect our environment? What kind of culture do we want? How do we help people? Yes, I right. get it. I get it. I I really envy you to the extent that you got this knowledge so much earlier in your career than I did. Uh, because it's fascinating and one of the reasons National Co-op Bank sponsors this show is hopefully get more people to understand this co-op world that they might want to Search out, when they graduate, search out a co-op and find a co-op to work in or start their own. And you did this for 40 years. Now, as you were talking, I I graduated with my MBA in 1976. That was the mainframe area. In 1981, I got my first sort of mini computer. There was a laptop in 86 maybe from Hewlett-Packard. But it took me back to Lotus one, two, three. Matter of fact, before Lotus One Two Three, it was really difficult to do spreadsheeting and budgeting on the computer. But going from payroll on the computer and had these big big files for payroll where everybody had all of these different files and big files for accounts payable to pay your bills and files for you know invoicing your customers and keeping track of your customers and each one of them had a ledger sheet and all of its stuff so yeah a much different world and you didn't get you didn't have it in your training did you You weren't a programmer
1: or anything like that no i mean that's kind of the irony of of the whole thing i had an accounting and business degree um the secret here vernon is i never wrote a line of code for nisc not a single line of code <laughs> But we had amazing people that did and that were so dedicated to um, our cause of delivering these technologies to rural America. Um, these employees could have gone to work wherever they wanted and they chose to come. And, you know, the, the interesting thing is the technology business is notorious for high turnover, Right. You jump around, you go from from organization to organization because you can, because your skills are in demand. I mean, if you go to NISC, the cool part is, I mean, there's people that have been there for over 40 years, 30 years, 25 years. I mean, the turnover in that co-op environment, when every one of those employees has marketable skills, the turnover is a quarter of what it is in the private sector. And you would say, well, why is that? How can that be? how How are you holding those employees?
0: And you know, I'm, the, and uh, the answer, Ron, I'm supposed to be I'm supposed to be asking the questions, but I would like to know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is,
1: is culture. The answer is these. You know, there's a lot said about Gen X and millennials and all of that. And I'll tell you what, Vernon, our average age was you know, mid thirties. So we had a lot of, I mean, 85% of our recruits were right out of the university. So we had a lot of 20 something. And these young people, I sound like an old guy now, but these young people are very purposeful, much more so than I was, you know, I mean, our generation was okay who's going to pay me the most, right? That's, that's how you're yep. going to select your employer. These, these young people, we know that when we sat down with a programmer, they probably had two offers in their back pocket. And one of them could have been from Google and Apple. So why would you go to work for this little technology co-op in the Midwest rather than the glamour and the glitz of going to Redmond, Washington, or Silicon Valley, San Jose, but they did and they stayed. And that that was the most important differentiator of NISC in the market. Because we I mean, we competed against SAP and Oracle and Microsoft. And you'd say, Well, how in the world I mean these are huge companies, deep resources, but we led with culture. So listen, Vern, I wanna come back we're going to take our second
0: break here and talk a little bit more about this culture when we come back you had a phenomenal um, experience and some of the documents i read said that under your leadership it went from 400 employees to 1400 employees in isc so the culture is what kept people there i want to talk about that culture and the co-op values and principles which my assumption is was what was the foundation of that culture but we'll be right back News Talk Station. Welcome back. Today we have Mr. Vern Dosh uh, with us talking about his 40 year experience with NISC, National Information. Solutions Corporation, which is a consumer co-op. It is made up of the owners are the rural electric co-ops, the telephone co-ops, and the broadband co op So they own this network of this technology cooperative. So we were talking about culture before we left. And so just very quickly, the values of cooperation, the ethical values I like best are honesty, openness social responsibility, and caring for one another. I call it the golden rule of cooperation. And there's volunteer and open membership in a co-op. It doesn't make any difference about your political, racial, age, gender, if you want to be a member. Any of those different businesses could could become a part of this. The Democratic member control, one member, one vote. It did not make any bit difference how big the business is, I would assume. Member economic participation, they joined in, normally there's a fee to join in, and to the point that there's money to be made, there's a dividend. Uh, Autonomy and independence, you had to own and control it. Number five is education, training, and information. It's a big part of cooperation. And when I learned about co-ops, Vern, that was the number one thing I liked about it, uh, was this education, training, and information. Then there's cooperation among co-ops is the sixth principle, and you all are doing that big time. (laughs) You are a co-op of co-ops. Then there's concern for community, and that's what turned you on from day one when you sat down with your interview for the job, was that they were concerned, these miners, these people that mine coal, wanted to reclaim the earth. And that's what was big for you and probably what's big for a lot of the people in your culture. But I wanted to, are these the the, the,
1: the foundation of the culture that you were talking about? Yeah, absolutely, Vernon. And, and, you know, I would say early on, again, I mean, I was an accountant, right? The, the bottom line, the balance sheet, that's what my focus was. And I think in those early years when I was, first introduced to co-ops, and the thought of culture being important, it seemed a little weak. It's like, uh, ah, culture, that's something that HR talks about. It really doesn't affect the bottom line. And what we found over the years is it absolutely affects the bottom line. I mean, if a solid culture built on trust, built on transparency, if that's in place employees stay and in our case our employees were our intellectual property i mean they they were the ones that were adding value they were the the innovative ones that were building software products that would serve our members so to create an environment that encouraged them to stay was one of the most important recruiting and retention items that we had and and the other thing the other thing was it's the way we sold our product also and licensed our product our our customers were our partners they were our owners they served on our board of directors and so there was a high degree of accountability and this sense of they're not just customers, they're our partners. I mean, they sat down with us to develop software. They gave us guidance, and so our products um, were much more accommodating for them. So culture was absolutely at the heart of the way we recruited, the way we retained employees, and the way we sold our products. The interesting, and and this is kind of a, a personal story, but as a dad, I, I think it will, many of you will be able to relate. Our son was a was a banker, is a banker, commercial banker, large regional bank, um, did that for many years. And then a few years ago, the position of um, territory manager for a credit union opened up. And he took that job and went to work for a credit union. A couple months into that, He said, dad, you know, all these years you've been talking about rural electrics and co-op this and co-op that. He said, I thought it was kind of lame, but he said, I get it now. Now that I'm working for a credit union, for a cooperative where we have an opportunity to take care of our employees. He said, I get it now. And that's, you know, Zach is 30 some years old and there's a lot of Twenty and thirty-year-olds out there who are looking at this cooperative business model and saying this makes a lot of sense. I want to be. I want to be involved. You know, it uh, kind of the kind of view because I would have loved would have to learn to, to be involved in this. That, in that in that
0: position. Position. So yes, I, I I really like that that story,
1: in particular with your
0: son doing it now. So what I have it is that NISC is a co-op of co-ops so that what you said earlier was these different businesses, rural electric co-ops are member and owners of NISC and you said at one point there were a thousand rural electric and 1400 rural telephones and then they could join this organization and like rural electric, they have customers it's a co-op and their customers are the people that have the the meters that get electricity. So is this right, Vern, that Rural Electric, like the one Capital Electric to used to work for, would become a member of your co-op, and then you would provide information technology, computer stuff, so that it helped not only Rural Electric, but it helped the customers of Rural Electric.
1: Right. You know, what, what we really were, Vernon, was a facilitator our products were very much kind of infrastructure in the background they were the computers they were the networks it was the software that allowed that co-op to do their billing allowed the co-op to do their accounting their engineering manage outages um build their plant all of that it was it was it was the tools that these co-ops needed to be efficient. And, you know, at the end of the day, if if you're a rural electric, your, your goal is to deliver reliable power at the lowest possible cost. So our challenge and our task was to leverage emerging technologies to make these co-ops more efficient. And, you know, there's many of our customers, many of the rural electrics that served Areas of the country that number one were hard to get to number two were not populated very well We have some members that have less than one member per mile of, of line that is that is constructed Whereas in in the big cities you probably have two or three hundred customers per mile of line so the financials are very different and the challenges of Delivering these, you know, electricity and broadband in an economical, reliable way, really means that we have to lean on technology a lot, and that really is at the heart of what we did. And um, you know, we were we were competing with the big investor-owned utilities, we were competing with the big regional telephone companies, oh, and um, it was always so cool to to see how when these You know, you you mentioned the sixth cooperative principle, cooperatives cooperating. That was the heart of NISC. It was cooperatives working together for the benefit of that end customer. And it worked. It it worked in, in a really powerful, no pun intended, in a very powerful way. What a pun fits really
0: well. So in the benefits of cooperation, you, you've already mentioned that it created a culture for the employees inside of NISC. What are some of the other benefits that you found both for your customer, these rural electric, rural telephone, broadband customers, and for their customers? What are, what are yeah. some of the benefits of cooperation?
1: So what we saw, and certainly um, these last 18 months uh, with COVID, we saw the importance of of broadband, for example. Uh, There was a book written by, it was commissioned by the National Rural Cooperative Association, NRECA, years ago, and it was entitled The Next Greatest Thing. And it was a story of when electricity came to these rural parts of the country delivered by rural electric cooperatives. And that was, that was very real to me because my grandfather was an original incorporator of a co-op. And he, I remember sitting on his lap and he would tell me the story of when Chem Electric Cooperative pulled into their yard to install electricity and what, what a complete game changer that was for their farm. Well, what's happening and and what we're seeing across rural America right now is is that there are the haves and the have-nots when it comes to broadband. And in many cases, these rural electrics are jumping in, working alongside rural telecoms. There's not, you know, in the areas where there are not rural telecoms, we're seeing rural electrics deploy broadband also. So that's, you know, as electricity was the next greatest thing that enhanced the quality of life that allowed people to live in rural America and not be second-class citizens, the same thing is happening with broadband. So the world is very much behind the scenes, but it's providing those tools so that the rural telcos, rural electrics, can go out and efficiently, reliably – and cost-effectively deliver those those services that are absolutely life-changing. It's such a cool story. I just I've been doing this for a long time, but honestly, I get a thrill up and down my spine just talking to you now about it. Well, I, I get it, and I started smiling because Martin Lowry, uh,
0: who worked for NRECA, and I know you know him because he's such a great guy. Would tell he's been on the show a couple times that he would tell story his stories how these big linemen the guys that put up the poles and the lines they would go overseas and there would be this village or this hut or this tribe and he says some of these guys would come back crying of what it was like when they turned that electricity on for those folks and so it's i get it i I get it i get it we don't have to be like abe lincoln and read with the candlelight anymore
1: yeah well and and that's you bring up a really good point vernon and that is Our charge as rural electrics, rural telephones is to electrify and bring broadband to rural America. But we see what a profound impact that has had. And so there's this sense, again, and this is at the core of being a co-op, of saying, oh, my goodness, there's places around the world that haven't had the next greatest thing, that aren't electrified, that don't have broadband. And so you see these incredibly generous cooperatives and employees who in many cases take vacation to go overseas and to help them build for the first time power lines, for the first time deploy broadband. I mean, that's the sense of of purpose um, and of social responsibility that is so much a fabric of these cooperatives. We're going to take our final break. The hour goes by fast when you're having fun. and a great conversation. I
0: thank you for that. And talking about social responsibility and you talk about the 18 past 18 months of COVID-19 as the pandemic. When we come back, I'd really like to get your view on the future and cooperation and particularly uh, rural electric, rural telephone. And you were just talking about broadband, but we'll come back and talk about the future. We'll be right back. Vernon Oaks and the program is Everything Cooperative, and Mr. Vernon Dosh is our guest this morning. National Cooperative Bank sponsors this program and has for eight years now. Vernon, they sponsor this program so we can get the information out about a co op and the cooperative world. We call this Everything Co op because there are four different types of co ops, and just very quickly, it depends on who owns and controls the business. If the business is owned and controlled by the employees, it's called a worker co-op, and that could be any business. If the business is owned and controlled by the people that uses the products and services, then it's called a consumer co-op. The consumers own that business. That's housing co-ops, that's credit unions, food co-ops. Now food co-ops could be a employee-owned, worker-owned, or it could be owned by the consumer, REI, a health clinic in Madison. And now we have a technology a consumer co-op well if a, if a group of uh, people come together to purchase products and services for better quality and lower prices it's called a purchasing co-op and that's farmers artists consumer alliance in dc ace hardware these are different types of purchasing co-ops and if a group of people or businesses come together to market their products or services to get access to more markets at a better price those are farmers that come together and form Cabot Creamery, Orlando Lakes, Ocean Spray, and artists in, uh, like Ujamaa in Pittsburgh. And they're called marketing co-ops or producer co-ops. So here we have NISC is a consumer co-op. Different businesses own it. And those businesses that are owning it are consumer co-ops like Rural Electric, Rural Telephone, and Broadband. So, you have cooperation among co ops, and we've just talked about the benefits. Now, given we have these pandemics, we have COVID 19, which you mentioned, Vern, we have climate change, which is major, and just a quick uh, shout out to NCBA Palooza's having their cooperative impact conference the first week of October. And a, there is a um, panel on climate change and co-ops, and I was fortunate enough to be the moderator of that. And it's amazing what co-ops are doing to solve climate change. But we have racism, which I call a pandemic, and and we have guns, which is a pandemic, and what we're killing folks. And then we just have people that don't seem to get it. I I call it stupidity is a pandemic. But where do you see co-ops in this sort of future of what we can do to bring the next greatest thing so we could maybe solve COVID-19, climate change, racism, guns, can we do that in, in cooperation?
1: Yeah. Boy, that's uh, there's a lot to that question, a lot to unpack. But let me say this. At the very beginning of this conversation, we talked about how the co-ops were reclaiming land of mine territories before it was required, before it was a cool thing to do. In the same way, we are seeing cooperatives recognize the importance of, um, well, let me give you this example. Recently, the round table, the business round table issued a letter, the business round table. These are CEOs of some of the biggest corporations in, in the United States. It's the Jamie Diamonds from J.P. Morgan. It's the Tim Cooks from Apple. Um, it's the Jeff Bezos. So these are the really big corporations. They recently came out with a letter that said, you know, and, and before their major objective was increasing shareholder wealth, right? That's That was their mantra. Everything they did was to increase shareholder wealth. But they came out with this collaborative letter that said, you know, We think taking care of the communities is important. We think that being transparent is important. We think that taking care of the employee is important. We think that having good relationships with our supplier is important. And, oh, by the way, we think increasing shareholder wealth. So all of a sudden their list, and I'm thrilled with this, their list went from number one, which was increased shareholder wealth, to recognizing their social and community responsibilities and also responsibilities to their employees. I got to tell you, and I don't mean this to sound hubris, but I looked at that letter the first time and I said, you know, what took you so long? Yes. I mean, this is what the mantra has been for co-ops for so many years, yes, you take care of the communities, you invest in the communities, you, you make sure that there's diversity in your workforce, you take care of your employees, you do the right thing. And so what is this amazing revelation to corporate America is something that, that the co-ops have understood for a long time. So the reason I tell you that story or that perspective is I believe that these can be the golden years for co-ops. I believe that the young people are understanding that much better than I did when I was 20 years old. And so this sense of corporate responsibility, some call it woke today. I don't even know what that means, but I do know that that is at the heart of what it means to be a co-op. And that, that makes me very proud to be associated with co-ops, Vernon. I am, too. I'm,
0: I'm really proud. And I had Rebecca Henderson on the show, and she did a book called uh, Reimagine Capitalism in a World on Fire. And when she was on the show, there were fires in Australia. There was the fires in, in, on the west side uh, and then some burning started happening in inner cities with the George Floyd uh, death. So there's all these fires going on. And she said when she wrote it, she didn't even have that in mind. But she said at the end of the show, which blew me away, reimagine capitalism is reimagine capitalism as they're co-ops. <laughs> okay. And that's yeah. what you just said, that these – Capitalist organizations; these head of a capitalist organization have said, uh, they didn't use the word, we'll become co-op, but we become the values of cooperation, which you and I
1: love. And, and I, I think that's encouraging. I mean, that gives me hope for the business side of our world, that even the biggest corporations, the most powerful corporations are recognizing and embracing the importance of those elements that go way beyond just providing shareholder wealth. I mean, at NISC, yeah, I mean, it was about being financially solid. But as a, as a co-op, you know you know why we were able to compete effectively with the SAPs and the Oracles of the world? Because of our partnership with our members. Because 85% of, of what we invested was in our employees because of all of our expenses 20 plus 30 plus percent was invested in R&D normally that wouldn't be acceptable in a technology company because a technology company is going their shareholders are going to want 20 30% return on their investment that was not the priority with NISC the priority was take care of the customer deliver the technology take care of the employees and I don't want to be Pollyannish about it. But by doing that, we became a very strong and sustainable organization financially. Isn't it amazing that when you put
0: doing the right thing first, how you become financially stable and strong, where when you're going after being financially stable and strong, you might get financially stable and strong, but you're not doing the right thing and people don't feel good about it and people take cracks at you. It's just not as, it's not as rewarding. Oh, speaking
1: of rewarding, would you do it all over again? Oh, absolutely. I mean, is there a few things that I would do different? Is there a few decisions that, that I would make that would be different? Maybe. But if I had the chance to walk across that graduation stage and two days later go to work for Capital Electric again, would I do it? Absolutely. You know, I feel so lucky, Vern, because I like I said, if I had that all planned and I was that smart, but I didn't. I happened into this industry that became a beautiful career, a rewarding career. I met people from literally from all over the world that were associated with co-ops. And it was a blessing. Uh, I feel like the luckiest guy around in terms of my career. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that I was able to work for a co-op for those years.
0: That is really wonderful. I, uh, I, I do envy you. I've had a good career, but not as rewarding as that. So what's your advice to young people out there that might be listening today?
1: My advice to young people is don't be enamored by... Uh, the glitz of the big companies. Um, Stay close to your roots. You know, a co-op generally is going to allow you to live where you want to live, not where you have to work. Keep your priorities straight. Work for a company who you have confidence in the management, that you trust the management. Um, There's a great book out right now, and the analogy is, when you go to a job, it's like getting in a boat be the boat. Don't just be a passenger. Become an active member in a co-op. Become the co-op. I want the employees of NISC to say, this is my co-op, not this is our management.
0: Thank you, Vern, for being on. Thank you so very much, everybody out there. We'll see you next Thursday. Please live cooperatively.